Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen, a professor at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I lecture on things like existentialism and beauty and truth and the meaning of life. And I'm Eric Kaplan. I'm a TV writer in Hollywood, currently on strike with a PhD in philosophy. <laughs> and this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, a philosophy podcast where we look at terrifying questions, think about them, and try to find our way to a place where we and you can feel courageous. Great. So what's our terrifying question this week? This week, our terrifying question is, is God dead? Is God dead? Um, yeah. Well, okay, that's a cool question. And I just want to understand what it means. Good. Because usually people say regarding God, they think he exists or they think he doesn't exist. Right. But right. if he's dead, yeah. he's a sort of thing that once existed and died. Right. So what's that all about? The phrase comes mostly from Nietzsche, although he's not the first person who ever said something like this. Hegel mentioned something about this being an important part of some religions where God is dead. Oh, really? And, yeah. I remember Great Pan was dead. Yeah. There were some people oh, in a boat, yeah. and they, they heard this horrible noise, and they were like, what's that all about? And it's like, Great Pan is dead. Where does that come from? Um, some story from the ancient world. It's a little less... Uh, worrisome, maybe, or a different kind of thing in a polytheistic religion where one of the gods... Odin, Odin, yes, there's the twilight of the gods, Ragnarok, they all get snuffed off. But if God uh, yeah. dies, there's no God. So what is, why does Nietzsche think God is a sort of being that could have once been alive and then die? What's he talking about? All right, so I think a lot of what he's talking about, although there are several ways to understand it, but one thing he's clearly talking about is something like, it used to be the case that we were moved and could take seriously this idea that there's something like God. And the idea has died. Mm -hmm. It's like we can no longer in at least Western culture, 19th century, modern world, we can no longer take these ideas seriously. And this is a crisis for us historically and culturally. That's part of what he's saying, I think. Like the idea has died. Okay, now just quick question. Yeah. We seems not to include like Mike Pence. <laughs> Right. And, and that's OK that we're talking about we people who think about these things seriously, ah, not people who are in the. Yeah, that's right. Crowd management. <laughs> yeah. Profession. It's really not a comment about how many people would say yes if you asked them, do you believe in God, especially in the 19th century? Nietzsche said this in 18. 84 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Plenty of people would have said, of course, I believe in God. And they would have insisted that they take it perfectly seriously. Uh, so in spite of that, Nietzsche thinks they don't really. Oh, they're lying to themselves. That's interesting. Yeah, I think I might think that about Mike Pence. That Yeah, that right, in exactly. Some sense, you, you believe there's a form of justice, transcendental justice in the world that will punish you forever for lying? Yeah. No, you don't. No, no you don't think <laughs> You would well, behave differently if you believed that. On Mike. the other hand, there's always been hypocrites, even when you know Christianity was sort of alive and well. There were plenty of uh, cynical hypocrites who lied to themselves and other people about what they believed. So that's not quite it. But but Nietzsche thought back in the day, yeah, there were people who were sincere, yeah, God believers, and there aren't now, or that way of life is on the way out. Well. Not only that, but there are not even really very many sincere atheists either. Mm -hmm. So um, in this famous uh, section in the book called The Gay Science, which, by the way, it may be worth just a footnote on the title there. doesn't mean what you might think it means, as I tell my students. Gay science is the Gaia Scienza, which is the art of the troubadours. Mm -hmm. So it's more like the happy or the joyful art of poetry. I've heard it translated as the joyful wisdom. Well, yeah, Nietzsche is kind of playing on the word so that it means science, too, because he uses the German word for science. By the way, I have a theory that nowadays when we translate something, we should give the reader the ability to click on a word and see the whole range of possible translations, if you're curious. Oh. Because a translator shouldn't be required to pick the English word yeah. that means what the German word means, because there isn't one. But if you could click on it, you could be like, oh, okay. Logos, like logos <laughs> means like six different things. Yeah. And at least like I don't need to learn ancient Greek. And I tried. It was too hard. Yeah. I don't need to learn ancient Greek to at least know there are six things logos means like that's good to know. Yeah. You know. Anyway, so what did he say in the gay science? He says, God is dead. Yeah, section 125, the madman. Who's a, Who says it? The madman. He prefigures Zarathustra. Zarathustra um, is the sort of hero of this long, very interesting, strange book that Nietzsche wrote right afterwards, who's coming with a message that right. God Supposedly is dead. Supposedly a parody 
and the German soldiers went off to their deaths by the millions with this in their backpack, <laughs> although presumably they didn't understand Did they have it. That? Oh, yeah, it was incredibly popular, incredibly popular. Well, it is kind of a parody of Luther's translation of the Bible. It's in biblical language. Also, sprach, the early English translations were thus spake. I remember that. So it sounds thus really spake. biblical. Okay. So the madman is a kind of uh, early version of okay. Zarathustra. And he comes along, and he's holding a lantern in broad daylight, which is a reference to Diogenes, who said he was looking for an honest man. Okay, I just got to say a quick, yeah. quick Diogenes story. Yeah, okay, good. Is that Alexander, who had conquered the known world, mm-hmm. came to Diogenes and said, I hear you're this great philosopher. What can I give you? And he said, please stop standing between me and the sun. Get your shadow <laughs> off of me. He was okay, rather anyway, irreverent. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should have an episode on the cynics. The cynics were pretty dope. Okay, <laughs> anyway, go on. So he's walking around. So Diogenes was walking around with a lantern in broad daylight. And when asked what he was doing, he said, I'm looking for an honest man. So Nietzsche has his madman walking around in broad daylight with a lantern. And he says, I'm looking for God. Where did mm. God go? And now the people that he encounters are described as atheists. Mm-hmm who laugh at him and say, oh, did he get lost? Oh, did you misplace him? Oh, maybe he got confused. He didn't know where he was going. Ha, 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 ha. They think he's a clown, and they don't believe in God. So they're, like you said at the beginning, to say God is dead is not to say God doesn't exist, because the atheists don't believe in God, and they think this madman is just a kind of buffoon or lunatic. And the madman sees that they don't get the message, that there's something much more important that's going on other than the idea that you can... Uh, preserve a lot of the moral values of Christianity, believe in equality and dignity and mutual respect and love, and then just take this one belief that there's this supernatural paternal entity up in heaven, and you can just cross that off your list of beliefs and everything else stays the same. So part of what he's also saying is, if God is really dead, if this idea has somehow collapsed, it's a global crisis for the entire system of our beliefs and values. And that's what the village atheists don't get. Oh, I wanted to ask something, and I don't know if I necessarily want to this might be a separate podcast. Yeah. We may we may at the end of this maybe we should we should put our heads together and figure out like what are the four other podcasts that yeah. come out of our discussion. This today. one leads to a lot leads of them. Leads to yeah, a lot yeah. of things. But I'm wondering if sort of like like concepts come in groups. Right. Like inside and outside. So like maybe God and humanity kind of are like inside and outside. Uh-huh. That we think of humanity as creatures of God and God is the creator of humanity. And I'm wondering whether Nietzsche is thinking when the concept of God or the practices of God belief go away, whether that powerfully transforms our understanding of what it is to be a self, what it is to oh, be human, yeah. what a meaningful life is, definitely. all that kind of stuff. You think so? Oh, definitely. Yeah, he definitely okay. thought that this means that we have to rethink ourselves. Oh, say the thing about the sponge. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, right. Hey, listeners, listen to this. There's a cool thing about a sponge. Is right. Have to, so, so turn, <laughs> the sponge you know, passage. Look up from your phone and pay attention to this one. It's right. really yeah, good. It really is great. Yeah. So when he gets laughed at by the atheists, he then gives them the what for, as if that's an expression, yes. <laughs> and says, mm-hmm. How did we let this happen? First of all, he says, God is dead, and we have killed him. Mm -hmm. We are the murderers of God. But how did we do this? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? Mm -hmm. What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Where is it moving to now? Where are we moving to? And this is a Copernicus reference? Yeah, that's right. Instead of us having the sky and the earth, we're just sort of floating, spinning through infinity. And there's no up and down anymore. Right, there's no up and down. There's a very powerful reference to Copernicus, which I think is actually really uh, astute, because I do think that the Copernican Revolution and the Scientific Revolution, that was a shock to people to think that there's no dome of the heavens there's not this dome moving around the earth which is stationary we're one thing among everything else Mm -hmm. and everything is moving in circular motion not linear motion on the earth and that means we're just floating in empty space and when you look up in the sky you're not seeing the ceiling of the universe as it were you're seeing nothing right you're seeing empty space And you look at the moon through a telescope and you see irregular surfaces and mountains and it's this big rock that's sitting there. And that's kind of shocking. It sort of changes your view of the world. Now, of course, Lucretius thought that. Yeah. um, Yeah. But we were never in a Lucretian civilization. Oh, that's right. That was like a a few 
uptight Romans and Greeks <laughs> believed that, but it, it wasn't it wasn't moving the hearts of the whole civilization. That's right. It was kind of marginal. There were these marginal outliers, and Anaximander said the sun is just a big burning rock or flame in the right, sky. Right, it's right, nothing, right. None of the celestial things is really divine. So they were naturalistic, materialist philosophers in antiquity. Lucretius, the Roman poet, was getting it from Epicurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Epicurus and others were atomists who think right. that you know there's no soul other than the configuration of atoms in your body, and so when you die, it'll just dissolves and that's it you're gone so there's no afterlife Mm. ideas you might think are totally new and unprecedented we're not completely new it's just that they suddenly take center stage yes and become reconfiguring the whole rest of the ideas around them there were people in antiquity who were arguing uh it's the earth spinning and going around the sun okay so here's what i want to ask yeah the kind of person that you are if you take the idea of god seriously is something like someone who thinks that I don't know how to say this, but almost like, well, there's a couple things. One is that you can have an emotional relationship to the whole of your life, that you could be thankful for your life, and also that you could feel responsible to live your life in one way rather than another. Mm. Because these are both, if you think about them, anthropomorphic attitudes, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. whatever cells in our brain vibrate when we see a face they vibrate if you say, I'm thankful to be alive, Ah. because thankful means thankful. Ah. It's an interrelational concept. We're thankful to somebody. And I think similarly, I'm responsible in some sense. And of course, the philosophers of the theistic tradition say, this is all kind of a manner of speaking because God is inconceivable and beyond our categories and so forth. There's apophasis. But I do think in some sense, you're sort of relating to the fact of your existence mm-hmm. in the way you relate to a person. Yeah. And does Nietzsche think that that's going to go away, that we'll no longer feel responsible to live our lives one way rather than another? I think he thinks that it can, and whether it will or not is up to us. Okay. So, so what's his best, yeah. if he was doing a sales pitch for this post-religious yeah. culture, <laughs> what would it be like? What's that going to be yeah. like? Well, I mean, and this other translation of gay science, the joyful wisdom, I think what he thinks it promises is certain joy you get from the realization that you have this freedom Mm -hmm. to reconfigure the world and recreate the world and yourself into something entirely new and original. And that's why it's like the life of the troubadours, which you can be creative and artistic, and it's all up to us what we're going to make of ourselves in the world. So I do think there is this virtually boundless kind of optimism about the limits to the way we can conceive of ourselves and the world, and we don't have to feel like it's been prescribed or imposed upon us by anything external. Okay. Well, maybe we should take a little break. Let's take a break. That's okay. a lot to chew on. It is. Exactly. And Taylor. Let's let that okay. settle a little. Because well, like okay. one of the things to chew on is what's external anyway. Right. But yeah, let's, and, yeah. and the troubadours, weren't they just mooning after their lady who they never got? Anyway, <laughs> so we'll come back soon. Yep. Okay, well, that was a good break. Excellent. Um, uh, uh, we're here on scary, terrifying questions, um, and we're talking about whether God is dead. Yeah, um, yeah. And Taylor just brought up the troubadours. So the troubadours, my understanding was that if you were a troubadour, you got a crush on the wife of some yeah. nearby knight. <laughs> That's right, exactly. And you never actually yeah. became her boyfriend. Right. You just sort of mooned about the court writing poems about That's her. Right. Like Dante and Beatrice. Right. Yeah. So right. is yeah. that, and, and this is a, a an, I don't know how to pronounce this word, an apophthegem, an apophthegem of Stanley Cavell, mm-hmm. Is that romanticism is the mood, the move where the other takes over the role of God? Ah, so oh. my question is: in this post-God culture, are we just picking some person well, to get a crush on, and they're our God, or the state is our God, or well, are we our God, or there's no gods <laughs> at all? I think I think uh, it's us who will be the gods. I mean, um, that's a crude way to put it. We for collectively Nietzsche. become gods, something like that. I mean, and. I wouldn't hold Nietzsche to that quite in that formula, but he does say something like better that we become gods ourselves than that we see ourselves as bound by some creator god as traditionally conceived. So the analogy with the troubadours doesn't quite go that far, like the deification of some substitute Mm -hmm. for god, because he, Mm -hmm. he doesn't like the idea that there's just going to be some surrogate 
he thinks that's not quite accepting the idea that when God is dead and we're his killers, what we have to realize is that now we're on our own and everything is up to us. Mm-hmm. That's the scary thought. And I think the word science in gay science is also meant to be a kind of contrasting the art of the troubadours, which is at least creative and poetic and unburdened by a kind of scientific conscience Mm -hmm. with science and the scientific mentality that he'd grown up in, which you might think has just led to the dissolution, decay of traditional religious beliefs. Okay, so this is a huge path that I want to put a pin in and not go down. Sure. Nietzsche thinks that even the belief in truth is a holdover of theology, So he thinks that, in a sense, science has become our religion. That's right. And I think Is Science Our Religion is a great podcast. And let's not talk about it now because it's too big. Okay. But I want to—I don't know if this is a pin or a pathway. Maybe. But Nietzsche also thought that most of our traditional moral thinking has been so— connected to Christianity, that once we realize that God is dead, we also have to realize that most of our moral ideas are at least up for grabs. So, no, I I do have to say this. Yeah. If God being dead means everybody starts acting like Harvey Weinstein, (laughs) I don't want that. No, me neither. Like, it's just like I can hit on some... 21-year-old girl and chase her around the office. Because you're a free spirit. And, like, I'm making a lot of movies, and I eat scrambled eggs with my hands. <laughs> like, like that's not... That's not a no. That's not something we should be shooting for. It's certainly not. And, by the way, I, I kind of do want to say this. I, I was making a joke, but I do think that, like, there's an interesting true thing with Nietzsche, which is that when we're trying to figure out if God is dead... It's not like figuring out if the last Tasmanian wolf is dead. That's right. It's also figuring out what kind of person we want to be. That's right. And I think sort of like for my way, and I kind of go back and forth, if you think being thankful and pious is a good way to be, and then you basically believe in God, whatever your words are. Yeah. And if you think that that's a lame way to be, I'm sorry for the ableist language, if you think that's a lousy way yeah yeah although lousy literally means having lice on it but you think that's a bad Ah. (laughs) way to be um to to be pious and humble then you kind of don't or you do in a different way i don't know i think nietzsche you're more of a pagan i think nietzsche would accept that and take the bait or go for it and and i don't want to defend that but let me also say maybe we should defer that too to another podcast like is morality dead right yeah is morality dead and sort of like can morality be dead without us all becoming Harvey Weinstein? Yeah. Like, that would be the counter and, example. And Nietzsche was not saying that because God is dead, that we therefore have to rethink our morality. I think he thinks it was a moral change yes. in our view of the world that is, you know, can be summed up by saying God is dead because nothing now is morally compulsory. In other words, we create our values, and so we're the source and origin of anything that's going to be binding on us altogether. So let's bracket that because I don't want to go down there. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, because those are deep waters and many um, very sincere and intelligent people have devoted their whole lives to yeah. debating this. So we, we don't want to be glib. And as a preview for the next podcast that's on that subject, I want to just say I think Nietzsche is a very astute critic of morality, but I don't think he's got a very compelling alternative vision I don't know that there's a very coherent alternative that he's got in mind, but he does say some very profound things about what's going on in the current way we think about right and wrong and good and evil and so on. But the reason I propose this as a Mm -hmm. terrifying question Mm -hmm. is not because I'm particularly religious or believe in God. In fact, I think if you press me, I would say I don't. That's a difference from when I was younger. I think I was a slightly obnoxious adolescent atheist when I was younger. Mm -hmm. I was... uh, who uses that phrase? I think it may be Sloterdijk who refers to the adolescent atheists. Mm-hmm. There's plenty of them around who are kind of like the teenage kid who likes to sort of provoke people by saying, right. I don't believe in any of that, and that's stupid and superstitious, and it's mm-hmm. just dumb, and so on. And I was the existentialist version of that, I think, uh, in a younger incarnation. And my view has changed a lot because I've become perplexed about what people are even talking about when they talk about God or God existing Ah. or not existing. So I'm more just fascinated by the kind of mysteriousness of the question altogether. But I still think under any definition I can really articulate, I'd have to say, I guess not. I guess I don't believe it. Uh, Virtually any definition that I think is anything like a traditional idea. But the reason I propose it as a terrifying question is not because I'm committed to the idea of God or God existing or being alive or anything like that, but more like that if you take seriously the idea that something like that idea could die, it means that a whole way of understanding the world 
that used to be intact and vital and holding everything together could collapse and it could just get lost in cultural memory. And our whole view of the world could become so naturalized, secularized, that we would look back on religious thinking as just incomprehensible. Like, how could people have believed anything like that? Uh, and it'll right. be t completely inaccessible to us. And that, that sends a shiver down my spine, not because I'm attached to it, but, but more like I think the idea that a whole world like that could just be lost and looked back upon with just contempt and incomprehension, that gives me a kind of sense of, um, I don't know, I find that frightening. Are you frightened by the fact that making your leader into a mummy uh. is gone? <laughs> that nobody really wants to make their leader into a mummy? In a way. You're frightened by that too? Well, in a way, because, I'm, because I find, I don't think those people were just stupid. Uh-huh. And I think that something seemed to matter to them in a way that I can't even really imagine it mattering to me or to us now. Hmm. And I think the world they inhabited must have been such a different world that, yeah, looking at the mummy, I get maybe this is why people are fascinated by looking at mummies, because it's like a literal visual manifestation of something that's really dead and gone. And they didn't think they were just going to be wrapped up and put in a museum. No. They thought they were going to another world. And I find that enigmatic and disturbing. Well, I, I guess there's a certain kind of um, longing for the beautiful, mysterious beliefs of other people mm. uh, that you're expressing. Mm. And I kind of want to push back on it a little bit. Interesting. Uh -huh. Because I feel like either you respect the belief and you should be willing to entertain it mm. or you don't respect the belief mm. but if why what is this position that you have and i have it too so i'm sort of arguing with uh -huh. myself yeah where you have a longing for a belief that you don't actually have because i don't have a longing for it you're entranced by it or you you're sad that it's going away not either one of those it's okay. more like what i find frightening is that a whole world could just disappear into nothing mm -hmm. and be forgotten. So it's not that I have any investment or longing. Or, in fact, I think those ancient worlds were in all kinds of ways brutal. Yes. Yeah, I think Mad Max Fury Road is a pretty good representation of the oh, ancient world. Oh, I didn't world. see it. Oh, you got to see it. Oh, oh, yeah. It takes place in antiquity? No, it takes place in a new barbarism after the collapse of our civilization. Oh, okay. I saw the original Mad Max movie, which I liked No, a lot. you got to see Mad Max Fury Road. Okay. That's okay, a rare right. plug from so, the podcast. I've been reading a lot about early Christianity mm -hmm. and trying to figure out what was going on with Jesus of Nazareth. It's fascinating and alien and disturbing that something like that could have turned into the world religion mm -hmm. so dominant mm -hmm. because the beginnings of it were so weird. But the torture and the death and the, I mean, it's a terrifying world. So it's not like I'm nostalgic for it. Mm -hmm. But what I find uncanny, I think maybe that's mm -hmm. the best word, is that a whole world like that could have been held together and making sense through some combination of Jewish tradition and Hellenistic philosophy and the Roman Empire and then just kind of like disappeared or was transformed into something completely different in a few centuries and then eventually with the you know with the emergence of science the whole world has been reconfigured I mean in a way Nietzsche loved this I think this was Nietzsche's idea which that this is all good that it'll finally once we're honest with ourselves we'll realize that everything is contingent and chaotic and things come and go and there was never any real order to it mm. now I'm not embracing that view but what I'm finding is that what Nietzsche was sort of celebrating I find deeply unsettling right well here here's a here's a suggestion if the world just is the way it is and we just need to like figure it out and act accordingly you know jesus was god learn from a reputable source of god knowledge that this is the case and worship him it makes our lives strangely like they don't matter uh, uh. but if if religion or or our response to the mystery is a living relationship between our lives as humans and the possibilities that there are out there, it's a little more of a warm, living ah. thing. Like, our our response ah. is important. Okay, I see that logically, but let me just push back with a counter image. My, my yeah. image is sort of sure. the inverse of that. Sure. It's kind of that upside down, which is that mm. the idea that these most fundamental questions about what's real and what's important and what matters is just up to us makes me feel like it doesn't matter because it's an arbitrary choice well what if it's not 
What if it's an interrelationship? What if it's not just up to us or just up to yeah, whatever, okay. the unknown, the great mystery? It's a dance between us and it. And that's what creates a, a life or a, a communal life. Maybe that's right. But the thing that Nietzsche, I think, was imagining really getting rid of was the idea that there's anything pushing back on us about how the world is or, or what we ought to do or how we ought to live. So let me put it this way. What I am tempted to say even though I don't think of myself as religious. But there's another sense of religious in which maybe everybody is religious because you've got some deep, unquestioned, almost instinctive sense of what matters and what's important. And it can only play that role if it's kind of insulated from very much critical reflection or revision or sense of contingency. And if you examine even the most secular scientific sort of mentality among like the the juvenile atheists or the village atheists of of our time um you'll find that there's things that they take very seriously maybe it's truth maybe it's science progress um liberal values or whatever that they're deeply committed to those things in a way that they don't really feel like it's just up to them to make those things true or right or good so that it's a little bit of a myth that there can be a completely secularized culture with no trace of faith or even kind of magic. I mean, I, uh, there's a, maybe another podcast about magic. I was talking to my students the other day about, oh, gosh, it was it was Wittgenstein's comments on Fraser's uh, Golden Bough. Ah, yeah, in, good. In, I'm glad that's In which uh, Fraser was sort of giving these explanations for these rituals and practices that look to us kind of alien and maybe primitive. And specifically, the ritual was you'd pick a yeah. king for a year, and then you'd take him in a grove and kill him and pick a new king. Yeah, right. Yeah, which is pretty heavy, if you think about it. It's kind of like that movie Midsommar. Yeah. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's all kinds of things that look alien to us. And Wittgenstein makes the point, basically, that when you read these accounts, you get a little shiver down your spine about how mm-hmm. um, uncanny they are. And Wittgenstein's point is... Fraser's explanations could only be even intelligible uh, if he's able to evoke that same feeling that the people involved in those rituals must have had about them, that there's something strange and uncanny. This thing happened. Laugh if you can. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Laugh if you can. So in other words, we still have that. And I think we have that just attached to different things. Like I was trying to think of examples and one that came up. Uh, what if an alien sort of anthropologist looked at our practice of putting our hand on the Bible? And apparently it doesn't have to be the Bible. It can be any kinds of things. But suppose it's just we just say you have to put your hand on a book when you take an oath. Mm-hmm. Now, that may just look kind of superstitious, but I think we're very committed to that. I think if somebody just said, you know what, I'm going to skip this, or if somebody just said, you know what, let's skip that uh, because who cares? The argument that, well, it serves a pragmatic function, which is that it gets the person to realize that this is very serious and they have to tell the truth and they better not lie about it. But frankly, it you know, they know that. Uh, and frankly, the people who are kind of pathological liars will put their hand on the book and swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, and then they'll go ahead and lie. So everybody kind of knows yeah. that this is not necessary. It's a ritual. It looks completely superfluous. But it's not something that's just frivolous and we could just do without it. It's like a, it's a, it's a kind of a deep commitment. That's one example among many. There's the flags. We put the flag up. That's very important to us, right? It's not just a pragmatic thing. It's so symbolic. So there's all kinds of symbolism and quasi-magic yeah. that's involved in our practices. I think a good example is, I think a decent person won't say I love you if they don't. Right, right. But, but that's a, a magical use of language. Yes, right, yeah. <laughs> you know, that people treat that phrase, those three words, three little words, They treat those three words with some degree of... Of respect. It's an incantation of something. And you yeah. usually, you're not, usually, not always, sometimes you're telling that to somebody who doesn't know it. But usually when you say it to somebody, they already know it's true. So it's not like you're just relaying information to them. You're, you're sort of, mm-hmm. well, what are you doing exactly? It's a little, it's a little ritual of uh, yeah. performative magic. Yeah. I guess, I, all right, I've got, I got a lot to say. I think this is all interesting. But one thing I do want to say is, um, I think our culture particularly kind of European masculine culture has an emphasis on situations where an individual has power Mm. and it's a sort of fantasy. How would you live your life if you had power Mm. and which beliefs would you pick and how would you describe the world Ah. if it was up to you? Ah. But, and I find that if I kind of turn it around and think, 
oh man, we don't understand much of anything mm. and we're constantly weak and we're constantly vulnerable and we're constantly sort of terrified that this question of like Nietzsche says, nothing is pushing back. It's doing nothing but pushing back. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, like I'm, I'm constantly, I can barely move my, yeah. my pinky. I'm being so pushed back on. Yeah. I mean, I can't just sit there and decide right. what I think is right. I mean, I do it a little, but I feel like I'm subject to like a maelstrom of things I think are true, or I'll talk to somebody and they'll convince me, or I'll read something and I'll be convinced and I'll, yeah. I'll just go out in the world and I'll feel pushed one way or another. Absolutely. I feel like more like a weather vane than, yeah. than sort of like this this mountain that, that nothing pushes back against. Well, actually, and just to take one sort of kind of epistemic example, try to believe that the sun is a god. No. You can't. That the sun is a god. I mean, that was the standard view for, you know, ancient Egyptians, even the sort of early monotheistic Egyptian pharaoh uh, Akhenaten. He said there's only one god, but it was the sun, basically. Do you ever pray when you're in a situation of terror, either for yourself or a loved one? I've never prayed. I have to say, I didn't mm. learn, I didn't grow up learning how to do that, or I wouldn't know what it was to do it. So I feel like that's absent in my life. I, I, w- yeah. I will, I will, because oh, I just, I have moments where I'm just sort of like, I'm so scared mm. and I'm so at sea that, like, I don't trust my mind. I just oh. have to go to sort of a deeper emotional place and being like, oh, hope this works out, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I, I might say to myself, boy, I hope this works out. Right. But you call that praying? or. Mm. I might even say, God, I hope this works out, honestly. I see. I really feel the kind of the beauty of the gesture of thinking, well, it's in God's hands, and may God help me, or may God help him. Do you ever feel thankful for existence? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, definitely. I have a lot of that. I don't know quite what it's directed at or addressed to, but yeah, that's right. So in a way, that's what I mean when I say I think maybe there's something like religion or faith in anybody's view of the world, insofar as their world hangs together in such a way that it's not just empty and despairing. Right. Um, that you've got some... Uh, uh, oh, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, let me put yes. it this way. The thing about Nietzsche saying, now it's up to us to create our worlds and our values, and like there's nothing pushing back. I do think that's sort of the, the weakest part and the least persuasive to me, for the same reasons you indicate. But I think it's why that sponge passage about who wiped away the whole horizon with a sponge is so powerful because I think what the madman is seeing, what Zarathustra is seeing, and what Nietzsche was really in the grip of was the uncanniness of the idea that something like a whole world, Mm -hmm. the ground, could just collapse and change. Um, Precisely because to be in it is to take it for granted that it's absolutely solid. Right. Uh, And the people who could worship the sun, for them, that was kind of self-evident. And I think people with really sincere religious beliefs in the Middle Ages or the very early modern period, for them, it wasn't an elected choice to believe this. It was more like, of course, you grow up in that world and you take it for granted. Now, same thing applies to us, but it's a different bunch of beliefs. It's a belief in maybe the Big Bang and you know, the size of the universe and what the moon is made of. And maybe, you know, morally or politically, it's the importance of uh, values of equality and democracy and mutual respect. And uh, in other words, if I grew up a thousand or two thousand years before uh, I actually did, I would have all completely different beliefs and a completely different view of the world. That's the uncanniness right. I get yeah. when I think about the sponge wiping away the horizon. Yeah, one of the, one of the yeah. interesting things... Like, like I get that kind of uncanny feeling when I read about um, blockchain. Because hmm. the blockchain people, the kind of Bitcoin people, yeah, yeah. want to create a world in which um, people don't decide how to live their lives, but the algorithm tells them how to live their lives. Hmm. And, and I feel like scared when I hear that because I think they could accomplish that but I wish they'd fail, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but you can imagine a world where people like you put your resume on monster.com or whatever is the new version. And that puts you in the job Uh and and you can't do anything about it. And like, if you want to have a a romantic relationship, although I don't know how romantic would be, but if you want to have pair (laughs) bond, you, you put your information on, on match.com or whatever. And, and, and they you get a choice of people and if you can you know work out a deal 
then that's what happens. And such creatures would be sort of like weirdly unhuman. Yeah, right. Or very different from us. Yeah. And I am scared that that could happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like it angers me, as I guess anger is an emotion that comes up when we're protecting something we care about. It angers me that people are trying to do that as if it's a good thing. Right, yeah. Um, and, and advocating for this. You know, oh, it's like the, it's. I, I listened to a very good podcast about um, NFTs. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of related to that. Uh -huh. And it's weird how the sort of um, the imagery of the NFTs, like those horrible board ape pictures, uh -huh. it's, a, it's a way of showing people that we don't care about anything, <laughs> that we're going to replace <laughs> your bank account with a really ugly computer-generated picture of an ape in sunglasses <laughs> like it's a it's a it, it's a satanic gesture I, yeah. of destroying the previous uh understanding of being I, yeah i don't have any understanding of any of that i'm way behind you because i hardly even know what these oh, there's a good are. No, there's I a mean, good podcast i know what nfts are but i i think it's just mind-boggling but here i'm not quite as pessimistic as you sound like you are because i actually have... We're not pessimistic. I'm just nervous. Yeah, well, okay. But here's what I think is I think it's not possible for things like that to get any real long-term traction. And the, re oh, good. and the reason is just because – and I don't think this is faith exactly. It's more like just a kind of belief. There's some pretty constant character of human nature mm -hmm. that uh, means that we are not very different from the way we were 20,000 years ago. Culture is a lot different. But we still have a lot of the same basic needs and instincts and need for love and community and hope. And human beings haven't changed much in mm -hmm. maybe whatever, 50,000 years, let's say, whenever language popped up more or less. So actually, I think human nature is going to be a kind of anchor and a kind of gyroscope that's going to keep people at least not just veering wildly off you know what you and I probably think is fundamentally important for people. You see, I wonder whether advances in um, genetics and neuroscience could cause people if like people are like yeah. people take too many risks people are leaving their jobs to run away and and become mountain climbers and that's bad yeah <laughs> so yeah. we're gonna look at people's google searches and figure out if they're searching for stuff that's associated with taking a big risk and then we're gonna send them a, mm. a some form of pharmaceutical that will make them more risk averse like that's what I fear. Yeah, is, I, it's, I, I, it's is that uh -huh, with the yeah. combination of the ability to to tweak the human brain and the human genome, that this sort of weird Borg-like entity, which is a mixture of computer screens and human flesh, will evolve in a way that will leave behind mm. friendship and love and community. I, I don't think so. I think those things are always going to be stronger and more permanent, and long-lasting than any of these technological innovations. I, I mean, that's interesting. I don't have any argument for this other than that I just think this is a biologically evolved fact about us as organisms over the course of many millions of years that's maintained a lot of constancy and reproductive success. Lots of individual lives are going to be always messy and always have been, but these sort of technological things can come and go. People can just unplug their computers and go off social media and sort of get rid right. of these things if they if they have too many um, panic attacks and nervous breakdowns. Right, and right. So I think I think human nature is a kind of uh, an anchor. Well, here's a here's a a different way of pushing back against Nietzsche. Like human beings have been religious in every society. Yeah. Always. Right. So why would we think that something happening in 19th century ah. Germany would stop it? <laughs> Good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm sympathetic to that. But let me offer a not quite okay. – it's part of Nietzsche's story that I think is actually very compelling, which is that I do think that something really deep and important happened in about the 17th century with the advent of modern science. And here's what it is. And I do think this posed maybe a kind of – how do I want to put it? I don't want to use the phrase existential threat since that's so, mm. but but I do mean it in the sense that like it may be existential threat, uh, like it maybe threatens the very existence of something like religious belief or Christianity, which is that what emerged was a separation of two questions. One question is what's really deep and important and what matters and what's the source of value and what's worth worshiping and loving and being committed to and so on. On the one hand, value, call it. And on the other hand, this other question, which is, what is the world like? Mm -hmm. How are things made? How are they constructed? And these two things turn out maybe to have nothing to do with each other, virtually nothing, because not only is the Earth not the center of the universe, 
but we're a randomly evolved organism among other organisms. The way you draw a map reflects a kind of narcissism that turns out to just be completely illusory from a naturalistic point of view. What I would like to do is for us to take our second break, and I want to come back with a book recommendation. Okay, that sounds good. Okay, that was our break. And uh, the book recommendation is your book called Does Santa Exist? Because I've recently been reading it, and it's brilliant and funny. If you want to read more about this kind of topic, does Santa exist? Does God exist? Does the thing you think is most important and valuable exist? It's a brilliant exploration of that philosophical question in a funny and entertaining way. So does Santa exist? I recommend it to all our listeners. Well, it's nice of you, Taylor. And just you don't need to believe me at home. But I did not ask Taylor to say this. This this spontaneously no. <laughs> generated from his life. That's right. But I think what the reason why I wrote that was, I guess, I think some of the most profound conversations I've had with other human beings have been about, does God exist? Does anything happen after we die? Like, I really value that conversational space. Mm -hmm. mm. And I am kind of somebody who, like, I've always been sort of seeking answers and looking for you know rabbis and gurus mm. and monks and people like that and yet i'm very ambivalent about the idea of um of it being a blood sport of sort of forcing people oh yeah to yeah. believe one thing rather than another yeah but i like the idea that we can have a mutually respectful loving conversation about these things yeah so that's what i tried to do in this book does santa exist it's sort of really about does God exist, but I, I just wanted to pick some way to kind of um, lower the fury, yeah. <laughs> lower the level of fury, yeah. because I think these can be really intimate conversations we can have with each other, but when it's from a state of fury, it's bad. But I do th understand why it's from a state of fury, because I think particularly in this country, but you know in Europe too, yeah. there's a huge amount of religious child abuse mm. which is either literally physical abuse or just people who are subjected to this sort of despotism of their parents and it's cloaked in the despotism of god mm -hmm. and i think the people mm. who are furious at religion are survivors of that oh, i see interesting well, you do it beautifully in the book. It has that spirit of cooperation and mutual understanding. Oh, I know I know a yeah. thing. I, I mentioned this in the book, but it always kind of struck me as an unexplored but very deep passage in uh, Anna Karenina mm. by Count Tolstoy, <laughs> where there's a, a secular but very good guy named Levin oh, yeah. who's spending his time working with the peasants. Oh, yes, yes. But he's an atheist. Yep. And then a priest says to him, if a child comes to you and says, what happens after we die? Does any of this matter? Are you going to say, no, there is no God, there is no afterlife, none of it matters? And Levin is like, no, I guess I wouldn't do that. That sounds cruel. Mm. And then the priest says, well, if you shouldn't say it to a child, you shouldn't say it to yourself mm. either. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I, I always found this a very deep point uh, from Tolstoy. Yeah. And perhaps it connects to the thing I said earlier about sort of embracing our powerlessness yeah because i i do sort of think i, I mean this is a thing that frustrates me a little yeah. bit with dan dennett because i've had some conversations with him and i don't know if, if the listeners at home know but he's one of the four horsemen <laughs> of the new atheism and the most sophisticated of any of them oh so i got in a couple of arguments with him yeah but one of the things that strikes me is like he says that he thinks that everything other than, I guess, quantum mechanics is metaphor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And he's yeah. interested in those metaphors that are conducive to life right. or conducive to human yeah. progress or something like that. And then I think that doesn't go too well with his new atheism. Mm -hmm. Because if you're looking for answers to the questions of like, well, you know, what should we do about suffering? Or, oh my God, my loved one is really sick. What should I do? Those ways of talking are pretty good, <laughs> you know, yeah. at least they seem to, like, they're dangerous because of all the possibilities of, you know, religious abuse. But I think it's not clear to me that Dennett has a really strong argument why his new right. atheist answers are better. No. In fact, you, I, another way to put, I think, the point you're making is to say, okay, suppose we see, concede that they're all metaphorical. So what? 
I mean, maybe they have exactly right. the same import that they would have if you had a theory of language or semantics that told you that they were literally true. Because mm-hmm. to take them very seriously, even if they're metaphors, is going to be functionally the same as taking them very seriously because you think they're true. Right. And I sort of feel like somebody like Rumi, mm. you know, a famous uh, Islamic mystic, mm-hmm. would say, of course it's poetry. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'm a poet. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I think the funny thing about the end of Dennett's book on Darwin, it ends with um, even written out as this song, Tell Me Why the Stars Shine, Tell Me Why the Sky is Blue, and Then I Will Tell You Why I Love You. Mm -hmm. And then the second round, the second verse is, Because God made the stars to shine, because God made the skies to be blue, because God made you, that's why I love you. And he quotes this as this beautiful sort of thing that encapsulates this wonderful sentiment that's supposed to be the conclusion of a book all about how Darwinian natural selection gives you a purely naturalistic explanation of the way everything is. And it allows you to have this pious, basically, obviously religious attitude toward the wondrousness of everything, thanks to natural selection and Darwin. And I think, well, you've just incorporated the entire religious mentality right back into your naturalistic picture of the world. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Unitarianism, to be honest. And it doesn't make any difference to anything, and we're right back where we started. And I always tell my students that if Nietzsche read that, he'd be rolling in his grave, because he thought, well, that's the village, you know, atheist who's just as pious as any Christian ever was about, you know, the mystery and wonder of everything, even though you think you have the scientific explanation that will ultimately explain why everything just is the way it is without any reference to any supernatural entities. It turns out to just divide through and make no difference to anything. So So if we take this point of view of the what are you going to tell the children, it switches it around a little bit. Because it's not like what do I think, but what sort of cultural practice, multi-generational cultural practice do I want to be a part of? Yeah, that's really good. And I don't want to give anything away about the Brothers Karamazov. Every time I talk about the Brothers Karamazov, I have to be careful not to tell too much because it's a murder mystery. Oh, no spoilers? It's been 140 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but, but, I, but 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 most people don't know. Okay, you know. Uh, so I'm not going to spoil it. But I will say this: Ivan, who's the middle brother, who goes around, who's the kind of disenchanted nihilistic atheist, who's in a very deep crisis because and he's Groucho, basically, he's, right? Is yeah, that right? He's Groucho. El Yasha okay. is Harpo. Anyway, go on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Nothing new under the sun. But one of the outcomes of all that, and again, I won't say why or how, is that. Um, it turns out he has to be careful about who he goes around saying that to. Ah, interesting. Um, that's all I'll say. But yeah, exactly, because uh, he feels like nobody's really listening to him or taking it seriously, and he's trying to get people to take this very seriously. And then the book shows you what happens if the wrong people start taking it seriously. <laughs> right. Uh, Although those arguments yeah. are always kind of weird yeah. because they're arguments for lying yeah, well, about whether or not God is alive. Well, though, let me let me also add to the picture that... Ivan has been tormenting himself with these thoughts about the sufferings of children and that nothing can redeem this and it doesn't matter if God exists because there's nothing he could do or say to make it right because the world is so horrible. He wants to turn back his ticket and kill himself when he's 30 because life is not worth living. He's torturing himself and he doesn't realize that it's torture because it's himself. But let me just quickly go back to Mm -hmm. this point about Mm -hmm. what I do think puts us in a new position that maybe humanity has never been in before for the last 400 years or so, is that the scientific question about the way the world really is has become detached from any question about value, about what's important and how we ought to live and so on. So the scientific image of the world is now radically alien. I mean, things are weirder than we could ever have imagined with quantum mechanics and, you know, cosmology. It's a world in which it seems like there's just no echo at all of what we take intuitively and traditionally to be our ground that we walk on, that we stand on, that holds us up, that's firm, that's a source of value and pleasure. So I think we've gotten radically alienated from what we actually believe the world to be. And this actually does pose a real question. Nietzsche's answer is that, well, values are now up to us, which I don't believe. But what I do think is it raises this question about what is the world that we actually live in and inhabit intuitively going to be like now that we know that the world as described by physics is not a world we can actually inhabit. It's radically alien, and that may be kind of like a version of the death of God. If God was the idea that these two things can be harmonized, then maybe I think maybe I think God is dead. Do, do you think we um, we got on this train when we started exploiting nature and separating ourselves from nature? When did that happen? I mean, maybe, but it's... Uh, I don't know, 
two thousand years ago or so that like yeah like if you're if you're um <laughs> a hunter gatherer kind of person yeah you clearly consider the ecosystem that you're part of is worthy of love and respect yeah and it's both provides a life for you and your your team and is your source of meaning and you kind of are thankful to it because it's so much more complicated than you are yeah. so maybe the effort to kind of maybe regimentize and master nature is what's created this split maybe but but i'm a little <laughs> i'm reminded of you know my first thought is on the other end maybe it was agriculture or maybe it was stone tools right that was the beginning of this there's the beginning of beckett's novel i think it's murphy uh, it begins with a description of a chess game it says comments on the moves and it's like uh white moves the queen pawn to the third mm. position and mm -hmm. uh, then black moves the king pawn one square forward and the comment on the black move is the source of all of black's subsequent troubles <laughs> uh -huh. like, well, from the very happen. beginning <laughs> right? mm -hmm. so yeah who knows at what point 2000 years ago more and more technology more and more manipulation of the environment more and more control of things maybe yeah but i do think that one really big watershed was the idea of purely mathematical descriptions of nature in purely objective terms with an experimental method, the point of which is to completely abstract from what we suppose to be important or right or good or how things ought to be naturally yeah. uh, and be open to the idea that things are radically alien. And it's just, just a kind of a crazy accident that we wound up in the world that molecules, atoms configured themselves in such a way that here we are. And that's frightening. And maybe the death of God is something like that emergence of that naturalistic picture of the world. But what I think is that it cannot mean that now we're just in charge of everything and we can make things up as we go, because there will still be things that it's not up to us to believe or to value uh, that, that are compelling on us. And maybe that's a religious impulse to think that um, yeah. the world really does push back on some of our attitudes that are completely within what's sometimes called the manifest image of the world, which is this more intuitive, commonsensical sort of view that's not the quantum mechanical picture. Right. So, yeah, it's interesting that we might want to... Well, there's so many things we should talk about, but I, I do think there's sort of like, let's not spend too much energy on if there are divine... If there's a divine realm, what are what's its personality and how should we count it? No, right. But sort of yeah. like, how would we like to relate to our lives so yeah. that we acknowledge that there's something worth cherishing yeah. that's larger than we are? Yeah, yeah, good. Well, there's lots of other possible topics that may be spinoffs of this episode, so that's okay. good. I think we're out of time. We are. Okay. We're finite temporal beings who are out of time. I'm still unsettled, but I'm a little less terrified. Less terrified, but unsettled. Well, that's what we're going through. It's a, li a lively <laughs> feeling, like the Novocaine wearing off. <laughs> the Novocaine of our civilization yep. slowly wearing off. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Peace Good. out, listeners. Bye-bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by me, Taylor Carmen.